0: What are you doing tonight? Because Applebee's has new half-price appetizers that'll make late nights, great nights, every night. From boneless buffalo wings and brewpub pretzels to chicken wonton tacos and more, your favorite scrumptious shareables are half the price from late night to later night. So call your crew, squad, BFFs, or gather some loose acquaintances and get to Applebee's after dark for half-price appetizers. Turn up. Get lit. It's live. Whatever they're saying these days, do it for half the price at Applebee's. For a limited time. Dine-in only. Price and participation may vary. If you're into designer furniture and you want the sofa that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends and all the quality, but without the designer prices. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Founders Brewing Company has found a way to make an IPA you can enjoy anytime... That's perfect for any occasion with their all-day IPA at 4.7 ABV. You can still taste the hops, of course, but it's the complex array of malts and grains that make all-day IPA a beer that will grab your attention. That full flavor and low ABV is what continues to make it a staple in my fridge. Look for Founders in your favorite beer store or check out their full line of beer at foundersbrewing.com. Founders Brewing Company, born and brewed in Michigan since 1997. Yours truly, William, Eric, Alexander, my friends. Call me Bill, and you're online with Bill Alexander, the video edition here at... Let's see, where are we at? We're on onlinewithbillalexander.com. We're also on YouTube, and we're also on Fayette TV, Channel 77 in the downtown Uniontown area. So uh, thank you for joining us tonight as we uh, get ready for this hoot nanny, as we like to call it here, Online with Bill Alexander. Well, tonight... We are actually have a individual that I've actually known longer than I thought I did, which I thought was quite interesting as we were talking before the program started tonight. And he is the author, Jason Jack Miller. And the funny thing about it is I only remember him from about eight years ago when we met when we did a TV program that was called Going Live with Fayette TV. But right now on the phone line, I have uh, Jason Jack Miller with me. Jason, how are you doing this evening?
1: I'm great. I gotta go on to be honest with you though. I didn't realize it was a hootin nanny, so I feel a little bit unconscious
0: <laughs> Okay. If you want I'll scale it back and it'll be a wingding instead, whatever you wanted to call it. i say say we got a full hoot nanny. Okay, that works. For that, yeah. <laughs> that works for me. So how are you
1: doing this evening? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I, uh, you know, uh, watch the news and I'm staying vigilant, and I think that, you know, things can always get better. But, uh, yeah, I'm doing well.
0: Yeah, the whole situation that happened over the weekend, my condolences goes out to the... uh the synagogue family that uh, the Living Tree synagogue family that uh, had the disaster that happened to them on uh, Saturday morning which again is still unbelievable and uh, for me I actually know people that go to that synagogue and I did not realize that until just today as we were talking to a few friends that uh, had connections to it so again my condolences goes out to everybody in the Pittsburgh area um, for that but um, hopefully we can we can learn from our situations and we can actually move on from there and actually make it a better uh, a better situation or a better outcome of what happened I agree I keep hoping that
1: one of these incidents is going to be the one that we learn from and I'm still holding my breath but you know I think that's kind of the thing with uh, you know being in public education and and being a writer and being human is that you always have to i think look pretty good and believe that it will get better Uh, i don't know if that's naive or not but i kind of uh live my life that way i I feel like if if i didn't it would get kind of bleak real fast so
0: So, I want to talk to you, uh, before we go into the whole education, I want to talk about your writing. And I was on a uh, website today called The Big Thrill, and I was reading a brief bio about you, and I thought it was interesting. It says, he worked as a record store clerk, a whitewater raft guide on some of Appalachia's wildest rivers, and a concierge in one of Florida's finest hotels. Uh My question is... How'd you get the union down?
1: Well, I am a product of state county Pennsylvania. I was born and raised, and uh, I come from coal miners and steel workers and farmers. And uh, you know, my well, I uh, started working in Ohio Polish for after high school, and I fell in love with the river. I think that's how I ended good at education. If I'm being honest, the idea of summer's off really it killed me, and uh, yeah, I know, right? What a, what a, what a thing to plan a life around, but uh, when my wife and I got married, we uh, kind of were undecided as to what to do. We thought we'd go to grad school for Maya Archeology, span or we'd go to Orlando and work for the mouse and we kind of flipped the coin and ended up in orlando working for the mouse so uh you know it was fun it was, a, it was a great time in our life so uh and uh we kind of realized that florida was great it ended up being an extended honeymoon and um it looked like education might give us all the things that we were looking for it might give us you know intellectual freedom it might give us time which is one of those things that adults don't seem to have a whole lot of and uh so after i stepped in florida we came back to Uniontown, and uh being away gave me a, a lot of perspective I, I i love the area i love fayette county i love Uniontown, uh and it's one of those things that i, I don't think we hear very often uh, i i think it's really easy to be the butt of jokes i think it's really easy to you know um, insult ourselves before other people can insult us, but uh, you know, I, I've been very happy here for, well, since 1999 <laughs> whenever uh, I first met you at AG, and you uh,
0: and again, where it's hard to believe blue. it's been uh, basically 20 years. And before I let you continue, I was just corrected. I made, mentioned the wrong name, of the synagogue. It's the Tree of Life Synagogue, my fault. I had other things going through my mind. Um, so the whole idea of you writing, where did this idea come from that you wanted to be a writer, I guess? Well, it came actually from my
1: wife, Heidi. And uh, for some reason, she logged the typewriter to Florida and it was still typewriters in in 98 and uh it was there i'm not sure what its purpose was and uh, she actually started writing before me she um I some ideas for novels, and she started putting my paper, and and I kind of thought about the things that I missed about Fayette County, like, you know, the mountains, and the seasons, and, you know, the river, a lot of it was river stories and and things that happened on the river, and I started uh, typing, I I wasn't writing at first, I was typing, and uh, eventually I realized that these stories were only meant something to me and I started to kind of think about how to put them into a narrative that maybe would, would pull and an excellent
0: and and that's how it started it actually was in Florida I don't know if I would have written, if I would have stayed here Now um, and so the audience knows your wife is um, she's been writing Hi- for Ru- Heidi Ruby Miller, she's been writing for how yeah. long? She's been writing for about
1: 20 years as well. Um, <laughs> probably a week longer than I have, <laughs> if we'll get on it. <laughs> and yeah, she writes science fiction and thrillers, and, uh, and she's done a lot of nonfiction stuff. So.
0: So, so, my question is, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the show what's with the, little, with the middle names? That's the whole thing. Jason Jack Miller, which well, has a really nice flow to it, and Heidi Ruby Miller, which has a nice flow to it. It does. That's her maiden name. Ruby is her maiden oh, name. Oh, really? Okay. That.
1: It is, yeah. So people that graduate with her would know her as Heidi Ruby. Okay. I was so lucky. Uh, you know, Jason Miller, if you Google Jason Miller, you get the bass player from God you get a rabbi, you get a mixed martial arts fighter, and you get Father Karras from The Exorcist. So as an author, none of those things really serve me well. That's
0: what you did the research. Well, so I thought when you actually, mentioned yeah. uh, Ru- or Heidi's middle name is Ruby, I was thinking of the uh, the Kenny Rogers song "Don't Take Your Love to Town." So uh, oh yeah, yeah. We're, but anyhow, that has nothing to do with it. But that's what popped into my head.
1: So yeah, well, it's, you know, yeah, it's a family name. So
0: so, so go. Uh, but yeah there go ahead I'm sorry no go go no, go ahead I'm sorry I'm jumping ahead here so oh that's right no uh, yeah it was um,
1: I think she was kind of reluctant to want to take my name and uh, when we were in Florida it was easier for her to do that but when the opportunity to take Ruby back again as an author manifested she jumped right at it
0: and um, she's mighty <laughs> Ruby Miller ever since so the, uh, the the type of the type of book that you write, and I know that uh, one of the, the covers I'm looking at right now um, is All Saints, and you also wrote a series called The Murder Ballads and Whiskey that you That's did, correct. which is four books, and in, in including All Saints, which is uh, what I'm looking at. And um, what is what is the uh, theme behind the books? <laughs>
1: You know, um, Appalachia is a unique place, and it's, it's a hodgepodge of cultures and ideas, and I kind of was intrigued by that. Uh, a former principal of mine, Pete Bozick, that gave me a brochure in 2003, and it was for a workshop in Spruce Knob, West Virginia, and he said, you're going to this. I don't think that I had a choice. Okay. He just gave me the brochure. Yeah, and I went and it was three weekends, and it was some of the most amazing stuff I'd ever heard. Uh, You know, we did the biology and the ecology and the geology, but the most intriguing thing was there was a music ethnographer from Davidson Elkins University, his name was Gerald Milne, and he spent a large part of his life going through the mountains with a microphone recording these old time fiddle players. And, uh, he was there for an entire weekend, and, and every time he talked, the, the room just fell silent because he started talking about how these fiddle players in Dunbar and, you know, um, down in West Virginia, um, their music sounded a lot more like the old Elizabethan music because of the isolation of the mountains. They were the old, time stuff. But in addition to the music, he would say that in these houses, he would look around and see hexes on the walls or he'd hear people talk about, you know, like a type of witchcraft. And uh, that was the stuff that pulled me in. That was the stuff that really got me hooked. So it's kind of that subtle magic that you don't really hear about a lot in Appalachia. If you think about the South, uh, Robert Johnson and go down at the crossroads or, you know, Louisiana with the hoodoo and the, uh, you know, the, the, um goofer powder and, and those types of things. Um, Appalachia is kind of a, a, a hidden little subset of that, but um, there are some people that kind of believe some really, really, really old things, and, and I got hooked on that.
0: And, and you're talking about um, deep in the hills of West Virginia, and the, 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 they, their worship with serpents and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, it, it, um, it kind of
1: goes back to the pre-Christian Celts in Europe. And, uh, you know, you think about um, Christmas, and of course, December 25th was a date that the Romans kind of imposed upon the pre-Christian pagans and Celts in Europe. Well, you know, in England, they kept their original date which they call old christmas and on the night of old christmas which is january 6th they believe if you go out at midnight the glass berry rose will bloom and of course you travel across the ocean and you travel deep into the mountains and the glass berry rose is, is long gone well in west virginia people that believe this believe that you go out at midnight and the elderberry bushes bloom. As you go to the barns, you'll hear the animals praying Okay. and, um, yeah, so, you know, the other place I actually saw this was in in the Outer Banks. There are a couple of islands that are, again, very, very isolated and they kind of believe the same thing. They practice some of the same things, so um,
0: you can see there's little pockets. Survive in isolation. And I was going to make a reference to the Outer Banks because I'm very familiar with that location too. Because I was—that's what I was thinking whenever you were talking about it. Um, okay, yeah. So when you started writing, did you did you think that you were going to be a writer per se, or did you think you were just going to do short stories for yourself? When did you come across this idea that you were going to actually publish writings for other people to read?
1: Well, you know,
0: when I started,
1: obviously, I thought that I'd be the next Stephen King. And, uh, you know, I had nothing that told me otherwise. And then, of course, I think the more you get into something, the more you realize, you know, the hurdles that exist. Um, I went back to grad school at uh, Seattle University and got a master's in writing popular fiction in 2007. At that point, the reality of it kind of started to, to really... Um, Smashed into my dreams, and uh, I don't want to say that I I started to kind of turn my back on a lot of things. But in 2007, 2008, 2009, um, publishing was in a weird place. Uh, We see it with you know Amazon now and and the closing of all these bookstores. You know, Um, Borders. Yeah, Um, and of course Barnes and Noble looks like it's soon to follow. And uh, I kind of started writing for myself. I kind of realized that. he go like I kind of realized that. Uh, statistically the chances of me becoming you know, the next Neil Gaiman or Stephen King were limited and when I started writing for myself it gave me a little bit of freedom and I think it was actually that freedom that led me to my current publishers and gave me the courage and the confidence to approach them the way that I did I don't think that I would have done that if I was still trying to follow those traditional ways of publishing and being published
0: Now how often I mean, how often does a new book come out that you write?
1: Um, Since 2012, um, I've had four. And the first three, I did rapid fire. Um, I I had two written when I went to my publisher, and then I wrote the next one in about a year. And I was kind of... um, hung up on this Amazon thing, this idea that you could really make a go if you had a book come out every nine months. Well, you know, that that meant the burnout real fast. And uh, the book, All Stance, just, that just came out this year, was supposed to have been out in 2014. So if you look at the average, I'm averaging about a book every year and a half. Okay. But if you look at the release dates, there were three real fast, and then the fourth one came uh, much, much later. But uh, my publishers are good, thankfully. And uh, again, the freedom to do what I want Wanted to and has been pretty liberating. I think that if I was kind of um, bound to a, an 18-month schedule, I'm not sure that I would have written what I wanted to write. I think that, you know, having the time to do that was, was kind of freeing artistically.
0: Now, when when we hear about you writing and we know you teach in the public school sector, we're assuming that you're an English teacher and you're not.
1: <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, I teach earth science and um, it's kind of weird. It, it does get back to whitewater rafting. I was a whitewater raft guy at Ohio Powell for eight or nine years. And uh, I, I had always been to the outdoors. We're blessed in southwestern Pennsylvania with an abundance of amazing natural places. And uh, working on the river, the Warhounds River Course, uh, put me in you know, front and center with just amazing things. You know, seeing floods, seeing uh you know, bears swim across the river seeing copperheads sunning themselves on the rocks. And uh, that really was what kind of drove me in education. So writing was not something that um, was part of my life until after I had gotten my degree in Earth and Space Science, which is kind of ironic. But I think that, you know, for me, um, it works, you know, kind of like the yin and the yang where I have the naturalism side on the one side, the very, very kind of scientific, grounded side, and on the other side I have the, the literary side, kind of the um, philosophical, metaphysical surreal types of things. So, as far as I'm concerned, it's been a weird little balance. I'm not sure if I had planned it if it would have come off, you know, uh, so well or so, you know, uniquely Suited to what I do.
0: Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program about the bio that I was looking at, and there is uh, there is a space here that actually about um, about your, your background and it was when I was a kid with the most pa- plastic dinosaurs growing up at a fossil collection my backpack was always stuffed with identification guides and magnifying glasses whenever I felt overwhelmed by some circumstances of a crappy situation home I disappeared into books about space or natural history science provided the answers to any question I was asking so that's basically the whole idea of you going into science and writing become a secondary uh, profession for you.
1: That's, yeah, that's true, and, and, and it's always been there. I, I grew up um, up at the tech school, um, up at the State County Go to Tech School, on East 57, yeah. and uh, you know, in our backyard there were old band of coal mines, and uh, one time my brother and my cousin and I found ourselves in one of those coal mines, um, and of course that you know, didn't go over well, as you can imagine, but you know, that found itself in one of my books, and I've been there, there's just seen it takes place exclusively at a coal mine, and I think about things like that and how having those experiences, that probably you know it's a scientific encounter, yet as a kid you bring that element of magic and wonder into it. I think that's really what I uh, transferred into my writing was that idea that you know we're, we're faced with this all around us if we just open our eyes up to it.
0: And then I also see that you were in, um, you you got involved with uh, uh, Buddhism.
1: Yeah, that was, you know, that was a passing phase, and that probably ties into, uh, you know, with All Saints um, more than anything else, the two characters are searching for their place in the universe, and, uh, you know, it's uh, for somebody that looks up the sky and, and doesn't see what everybody else sees, uh, I think those are probably common themes for, you know, a lot of people that I encounter. Um, you know, even students kind of looking for answers that they're not quite seeing what their parents see, and uh, I think that you know looking at those kind of things opened me up to a world that uh, was much bigger than the world that I encountered. You know, in, in Fair Chance, Pennsylvania, uh, Buddhism, which led me to Jack Kerouac and that led me to the Great Tibet, which led me to you know Bluegrass, and
0: uh, it was just kind of a, a stepping stone to open me up to a much much larger world so so what i'm hearing from you is in every book you write there's a lot of you in that book yeah well you know
1: i, I uh, try not to be so autobiographical and it's hard um and and i think i was a little bit embarrassed by that at first especially when in my first book my mom told me, I keep getting to that part where you have sex, and I stop reading. <laughs> yeah. And then she said, I didn't understand the end, and I said, because there's a plot point in that scene, so, you know. You have to but, read it. Uh, you have to read it. You have to just, you know. Uh, but yeah, I, I tried to kind of maybe steer away from that, but I feel like, um, there's a lot of me in there and uh, at this point I've embraced that and I understand that that's really part of what I'm doing this for. I'm doing this to understand myself. I'm doing this to try to figure out, you know, what these 85 or 87 years of this planet mean and that's one, one of the ways that I'm trying to work through it I suppose. Mm-hmm.
0: Now it also says that you worked on a travel guide app. Yeah.
1: My wife and I, we had a great opportunity back in 2005. <laughs> it seems so long ago now. But, um, yeah, we did a couple travel guides for Adelon Travel Publishing, and those led to opportunities to work for a couple of. I suppose, now defunct the sites, uh, Charles.com, GoNomad.com, um, you know, all these great little things at the beginning of the internet. Uh, Charles.com was great. Uh, they paid us in tents, and backpacks, and roof racks, oh. and uh, yeah, it was, it was a cool time, and I think that was probably oh four and oh five. Um, My photography was used for a couple, you know, apps, um, travel guides, you know, the idea was that people hit the ground in in Munich or Prague and uh, user
0: generated pictures would come up um, to kind of help them navigate. So uh, it was a lot of fun. Great opportunity. Um, and I was, I was uh, living vicariously through you and your wife this summer on your travels. And uh, it was interesting to see the photographs of where you went and uh, where, where, you, where your destination was going. Now, what are you planning on doing next summer? Well, that's uh, we don't really know what's going
1: on until just before we do it. You know, we uh, live in a small house here in town, and that was kind of our philosophy was that we um, we live small and uh, travel as much as we could. Um, I think in 20. 20- sixteen or 2017 when we went to Portugal we didn't know until July I don't think we booked that trip until July and then this year we went to uh, Newfoundland and we went to California and again both of those weren't booked until much much later. We're looking at uh, South Africa for 2019 and uh, we had found it's full of sites of great 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 airfare. I'm not sure either of us would survive the, the flight though. Oh. So um, that's the top right now. Now, but that's that, uh, open to change. Um, you know, England we've been looking at, you know, uh, London and then Out of Sky. And uh, part of the fun is planning. Um, winter rolls around and we get those long dark nights and we'll go to YouTube and we'll start pulling up videos and we'll, we'll get really, really deep into those things and basically plan five or six strips between December and April and then uh, once June rolls around we'll kind of see what airfare looks like, we'll see what we're feeling and uh, and go from there. So um, I'm not sure that I'd be able to do that if I was in any other profession. So I feel so, really lucky to kind of... Is get,
0: your- motivation and sometimes to go to these places and give you ideas for new stories or do you do it just for the love of the travel?
1: It's a little bit of both. And I think that whenever we're away, uh, I, I like to be open to experiences. And uh, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. I've um, in you know, for All Saints, a lot of what I got in All Saints was taken from our trips to Mexico way, way back in the 90s. In 96, we went to Mexico, we went to Cancun. Um, but we used Cancun as kind of a jumping off point to go to all these Maya ruins. And. Um, so all changes really entirely a result of those trips um this year i went hoping for some sort of inspiration and i didn't get anything they were phenomenal trips but as far as the writing went there was nothing that really sparked me so maybe down the road something will happen but um 2018 has been a really, really toxic turvy year. Um, my father passed away in February, and I think that I kind of took this summer to get my feet back beneath me, and both of the places that we went served that purpose. Um, Really, really isolated. A lot of time, you know, in nature. Not a lot of time in cities. And uh, the writing stuff didn't come. So I'm I'm hoping something happens this winter, but as far as the summer went, I didn't necessarily get what I was hoping for.
0: Now, um, with everything that's going on in the world today just in the United States and in this region have you ever thought of basing your story in this time frame or dealing with this political tension that we're uh, dealing with right now? That's an interesting question Um, with uh, my first three novels
1: I didn't they were kind of just story for the sake of story Um, they were unwise to Um, Western Pennsylvania and Morgantown, West Virginia and the music that I loved. And with All Saints, I stumbled into uh, the world of veterans returning from Afghanistan and Iraq. And um, that was a idea that really permeated every aspect of that story, and I I, I did get way, way more involved than I ever thought I would, Um, reading diaries and understanding the suicide rates and looking at what the VA does to veterans when they come back, you know, they they throw pills at them, and uh, so that was kind of the first time that I I really looked at what was happening around us, Mm -hmm. you know, with what's going on now, I'm still processing and uh, I'm not sure that I, I would do a great job of uh, incorporating that kind of stuff because uh, i have a hard time distancing myself. I'm a hard time, you know, being an objective observer. And I think as a writer, I don't have to. Um, I get angry. I get frustrated. I, I wonder what people are thinking. Um, I code in a way you know, that, that, that's really, you know, a good recipe for antagonists, but... Um, We'll see what happens. I, I'm an optimist. I, I said in, in my third book, I found a quote that a blues man is a prisoner of hope, and I kind of like that. I feel like it's is an objective observer. I have to believe that things are going to change, but I have to remember at the same time that 40 or 50% of the population thinks things are great Mm
0: -hmm. so uh, yeah it's a weird thing I'm still I
1: think working through
0: because I was just curious about that because I've read some of the stuff that you post online that are of the political nature and when you write what you do on Twitter and do that you come from it from a very I want to use the word thoughtful perspective. It's not antagonistic. Because to me, when I read your stuff, you're looking at both sides of the issue before you make a statement.
1: I appreciate that because uh, I wasn't always so good at that. Um, um, I actually, I could hold back way more than I ever want to. Um, You know, when, when I was new to Twitter, I just had no filter and tweeted whatever came in my mind. And my wife was really, really good at reminding me that um, when I'm angry, that is probably not the most accurate picture of who I am. i and plus remembering that I'm a school teacher <laughs> and trying to model a certain of behavior for students. Uh, it's easy for me to give in to anger. And uh, when I remember that I might have students that are reading this and what, what I want to see from them, I, I try to maybe veer towards a dialogue and a way of understanding rather than a way of reacting. I don't know, you know, it's, it's easy to get angry online, it's easy to create a bubble. And I've deleted my Facebook and Twitter accounts more times (laughs) in 20 yeah, literally. i deleted all my old tweets, I have deactivated Facebook multiple times, and uh, talk about a necessary evil. I don't even know if it's necessary, but I I hope to, I suppose, I I wonder if there's ever going to be reconciliation. I don't think, it's not going to come through violence, you know, it's not going to come through the types of things that we've seen. Um, I, th- I think it has to be a dialogue. And uh, I-, I believe that. I-, I think that if I stop believing that uh, i would see the world a very sad place i I can't do that just yet
0: because when i I've, i've interviewed other authors in the past and i always ask them about especially if they write in a previous time and ask them how they would write about today say 20 years from now you do write about this time period how would you actually try to Um, explain what was happening in this last three, four, five years to your audience that may have no understanding of this time period
1: well It's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, I, I read uh, a lot of novels by an author named Philip Kerr. And Philip Kerr writes a series of detective novels where the, the, the detective, Bernie Gunther, is uh, in Nazi Germany. And he is not a Nazi. He is, uh, you know, a, a cop just doing his job. And it's easy to default to the, this is what Nazis did. Except sometimes it feels true. It feels like we give in to fear. Um, we don't act like adults. You know, adults should be the adults. They should be the ones. I don't have kids. I, don't, I tell my students that all the time. You know, but adults are the ones that need to be keeping a cool head and talking to kids through these situations. And instead, they are posting hate speech online you know, these are, these are our peers these are people with children and uh, that's a hard thing I suppose to talk about. You know, science fiction is great for that. The science fiction you always make that guy the other and it'd be easy to have a group of aliens come in and do the stuff that we're doing um, or zombies, zombies serve the same purpose. Zombies are those things that we hate about ourselves. And my students are surprised when I show pictures from Night of the Living Dead where the hero is an African-American man mm-hmm. in the peak of the civil rights movement. And uh, I, I talk about how zombies are the other and it's funny to see those little lights clicking because they're starting to see that, you know, we do. We, we are the worst enemy. Um, I, I put on how many horror movies You know, the survivors get to the end and the humans are the bad guys. And uh, that's just one way of looking at things, but I think that the current culture makes it really, really easy for us to default to our most basic emotions of fear and insecurity. And I think that if I was writing about this, it'd be really, really easy to kind of create a bunch of bad guys who gave in to their most basic insecurities and fear and, and ignorances too
0: easy probably the one thing the one thing that you mentioned and you're talking about um, these people that are putting the hate speech online and they have children I don't think think that they understand that the children are reading what they're writing or listening to what or hearing what they're uh, being told or what's being said, and they're emulating what the adults are doing. And I don't think people understand that because you go back to the role model idea that we really don't have true role models. In this day and age, we just have people that are angry, and the kids are being angry because the adults are angry, and the kids don't understand why they're angry.
1: I agree, and I, I think this is probably you know a whole other show. But you know, you look at um, Gen X. I'm, I'm Gen X, and you know, Gen X, I think, is kind of a weird bottleneck. Um, I, I always feel that we were kind of overlooked. And, of course, you know, Millennials and Gen Z, whatever we're calling them now, um, they have more voices shouting at them than any other generation in history. Um, you know, I kind of think about the bands that I like. I'm not sure that, that anything I ever read, the bands were really putting out political stuff. I think probably when Pearl Jam was on Saturday Night Live in 94, and Eddie Vedder took out the Black Sharpie and uh, wrote... Choice on his arm it was the first time I understood that uh, music could be politicized. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, you see Kanye with his hat on, Nick and the Great hat on. Um and, you know, it's political. The, the line between politics and arts is definitely blurred. Um, you know, as far as speech goes, you think back again, Gen X, we didn't have platforms like this. We had the school newspaper or letters to the editor of a, of a magazine. Everybody is free to say what they need to without a filter and I think that filter probably like we talked about earlier with Twitter, um, that's the adult list maybe. Um,
0: that, that's that part of us that should just stop and, and, and maybe think about what we're putting out there. Because that's, that's what worries me and I've been doing, I've done talk radio for years and it was never this it was never hateful it was never you're right or I'm right you're wrong I don't care what you say your opinion doesn't matter There was always two sides of a conversation we were we we respectfully would either agree or disagree with the other person but we wouldn't hold a grudge when we did it And I noticed a shift. And I spoke to another gentleman um, a few weeks ago on this program about the same thing. And I told him, I noticed a cultural shift right after 9-11 and he is in his early 30s so he didn't see it that way he sees the cultural shift down a little bit later and mm-hmm. I'm just wondering do you, can you pinpoint a, a period of time whenever this this, uh, this disagreement or this argument became part of our culture where my opinion's the only opinion that matters the heck with the rest of you
1: I, I actually um, have talked about this, you know, with my wife and other people. I, I feel like the first time I noticed it was after the Monica Lewinsky Walensky okay. trials. And, you know, it, it kind of makes sense that, of course, and that was, what, a year before 9-11. But um, when did 24-Hour News become part of our culture? It would have been, what, mid-90s probably, That right? was the O.J.
0: Simpson trial.
1: Yeah, which it was 94, 95, mm-hmm. so... And if you're in a 24-hour news cycle, you have to fill it, um, and not everybody's an expert. I think that you know, you know, I'm not an expert in anything. You know, even I, I like writing, but you know, when I teach writing. I, I can talk about writing. I can talk about you know science stuff to some extent, but to talk about foreign policy or to talk about local government or to talk about um, you know border policy, uh, I, I would readily admit that there. More qualified people than me to talk about that. But that's not what we're seeing on CNN or Fox or any of these. We're seeing people that are not experts, that are put in a position to have their opinions um, put out there to convince people who are taking that as fact. And I think that's probably the problem, the, the disconnect between legitimate information and opinion. And, and there's a, there's no lie anymore. It's, it was a bird line, but now it's gone. You know, if you hear it on TV it's fact, if you read it in the newspaper it's fact, if you read it on the internet it's fact. And we don't know who the experts are anymore.
0: And, and I think it's interesting because when I was on the air years ago people would call me and because I was on the radio I was an expert. And I, yeah. uh, and I would come back and say, I'm not. I, I'm only here to entertain. I'm not here to an- solve the world's problems. That's not my job. But what's interesting as you go with the 24-hour news cycles, you have people that are entertaining or hosting programs. They're not experts either, but they're not They're not doing a disclaimer saying, I'm not an expert. I'm just here to entertain. And what's happening is the audience believe the talking heads that these people know what they're talking about. And for the most part, they're just disseminating false information even more than what it would be with someone that actually knew what they were talking about. Uh, for sure. I mean, i tell my students all the
1: time. I, I have, you know, Earth and Space Science, and I start with the Big Bang. I tell them, you know, ask an astrophysicist what happened before the Big Bang, and they'll tell you they don't know. But that's a sign of weakness. And they take that open willingness to admit there are certain unknowable facts as weakness. Um, like, we live in a society where a flat Earth thing is real. I thought it was like a hoax. I thought it was like an intellectual club. Yeah, I did too. Maybe looking at yeah, I know. I, and it, it seems like it's a real thing. I can't believe that. You know, I mean, the anti-vaxxers are one thing, but you know, flat Earth. Uh, I don't understand it, but it exists, and it exists because people can get information from any of a million sources and they can share it legitimate.
0: And it and it, and it and it frustrates me. So then this goes back on. Then I will ask you this question: when you when you talk to your students um, at Seton Hill, your your your, your writing okay. students, do you explain to them the responsibility they have when they put pen to paper?
1: It's interesting because it is a. Popular fiction class. Okay. And there's probably rare instances where I would have to say to a student, and I've had to, you know, talk to students, um, maybe the language they use regarding a particular race, Um, maybe talking about why, as a white author, it's not okay to use that word. Okay. So, to some extent, you know, we are doing that. We're, We're talking about, you know, how you as the author can be perceived, maybe you're appropriating uh, a culture, maybe you're um, taking liberties that, that aren't necessarily available to you. So it, it is there, but maybe in a slightly different way um, that there is a responsibility, you know, through your words to, I, I mean, you know, uh, art is a powerful motivator and, uh, you know, thinking about back in the 80s, how the kids committed suicide and of course it was blamed on heavy metal music um, whether the music did it or not is irrelevant the fact that those kids for whatever reason blamed the music or you know the adults right. it as such so yeah so there is that and, and an authorial figure that
0: responsibility and uh, yeah it comes out from time to time because I I was just curious because I um, in my teaching career I deal with media students because that's what I teach. I actually teach what I do. Kind of interesting, huh? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> what the chances? Um, but uh, what's, what's, inter- what's interesting about my perspective is the same thing, is that you have to be responsible because you don't know who your audience is and you yeah. want to reach the broadest at least what i was taught now this this has changed so much because we're so segmented but you want to reach the broadest audience you possibly can and you want to do it in a way that it's going to give them information they can use but for what i'm seeing today it's like no we want to splinter every audience we have and we want to segment them because we're only worried about this small percentage the heck with the whole picture and that's what worries me and i think that's why we're in the situation we're in right now because they're only pinpointing certain people that they can, they know that they can. I don't want maybe anger is too harsh a word, but they can motivate to do something that would work in their favor. Well, that's
1: yeah, I, I agree 100%. There, there's an audience for every writer out there, and everybody who tweets or, or goes to Facebook and posts is in office. You know, this is a kind of a crazy new era. I mean if Gutenberg um, heralded, heralded in the last big movement and, and printing. obviously then the internet is, is the next major leap forward everybody has the power to have their words reach millions of people and uh, you know authenticity is important I always you know with the writing program at Sheetan we talk about your image as a writer and the value of authenticity um, but for the regular person that doesn't have that benefit of you know media professional talking about what that means to be authentic in an era where nothing is authentic Um, there's no training for this there's no precedent for millions of people taking to the internet and putting ideas out there I suppose I, I thought maybe as humans we'd be better capable or better equipped to handle it but time and time again, it seems like we're not. And, and of course, we're not seeing the good stuff. We're not seeing, you know, every kid that takes cookies to every cop that, you right. know, saw all of his partners. But it's a shame that we kind of, this bad stuff keeps bubbling with the top.
0: Now, one thing that, and I don't know if it's right or not, and I'll bring it up to you, that I find it very interesting in 2018, especially in our region everybody is bringing up the memory of fred rogers yeah. and i'm starting to believe that people are realizing we are in a very toxic society and they're trying to go back and make sense of it by using a a, a, a figure that we all at one time trusted and trying to maybe remake everything um, using his values and with you being up in the Seton Hill area I was wondering if you see that up there
1: well you know what's funny is, um, is I do and again that's one of those things that the, um, my co-workers there the other faculty there are deeply invested in that kind of thing it's great to see it I mean just very politically active um, people that are you know, working to, to write about um, women issues or race issues and diversity issues, and of course, yeah, Fred Rogers being at Saint Vincent is, is a huge thing. It's it's part of it, um, which is it's nice. It's an amazing community there. I feel really really lucky to be a part of it. Now, I, I see Tom Hanks and Pittsburgh, and for me, you know, the childhood seventies. I feel like maybe there is something special about that time period. Um, you know, we had four networks, right? We had ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS. Right. And uh, <laughs> where we live, we only got two and four though. So, So, um, yeah, uh, sometimes we caught PBS, but I, I think that, you know, there was a monoculture where people could kind of come together. I mean, think about the Beatles and Ed Sullivan. Um, I don't know how many people witnessed it, but you didn't have a lot of choice. So if you had the TV on, there was probably a 25 to 32% chance that, that you, you were saw checking it. that. Yeah. Yeah. And you move to the 70s and 80s, and it starts to kind of break up a bit. And I wonder if that's part of it. You know, we have lost those common threads. So we're clinging to common threads from 40 years ago so That's the last time we had those sorts of
0: things. And, and, and I, I actually, I agree with you on that because... That was something that we were able all to gather around. Now everything is just so splintered and segmented that there is no common ground pretty much on anything. Because, no. I mean, you have 200 and some TV channels, so not everybody is able is watching the same thing, so you have nothing to discuss. Or they're not listening to the same thing. You still have the same radio stations, but now you also have online mm-hmm. stuff, and you have satellite, and you have all this other thing going, heck, I'm doing a program right now. Out of my own home, that 20 years ago I was sitting in a studio across the river from here and I would have never even thought this was possible. And I have the same, probably the same size listening audience or viewing audience as I do now as I did then. So again, we are making it in some ways easier, but we're also making it disconnected from what else is going on in society.
1: It's interesting because that is, I suppose, the conundrum. I would only want more democratization of you know, YouTube channels and uh, Twitter profiles. Um, I think that that's probably one of the most important things to come out of this, is the fact that the voiceless have kind a of voice, and I use the example of the Arab Spring with my students. That was amazing. That was one of those things that Twitter facilitated, revolution. And, uh, you know, I-, I-, I hope these are growing pains. I hope that, um, you know, the printing press you figure was controlled by people that had money. Printing price was controlled mm-hmm. by the literate. Well, really literate, and everybody has access to those types of things. So, um, I, I don't know. In ten years, will we have moderated um, these sorts of issues? Will we have, you know, found platforms where uh, disagreement can occur in civilized states? Um, I don't know. And I suppose that's why, as educators, we do what we do. We kind of have to model those types of things, hoping that. You know, some of these people, some of
0: these students will take that with them, but it seems like only time will tell. Part of the, it, it worries me because when I started in the field, it was much different. And just over the last 10 or 15 years, I've seen so much change. And I don't know if the change is for the better. And that's the one thing that worries me, and I'm looking at it from an educator and from a a professional. That at one time there was common ground. Right now, I don't know if I see it as much as I did when I first started. So it, it kind of it kind of it kind of uh, concerns me where we're going. And I've talked to a lot of people from journalism professionals to broadcasting professionals to authors who who reach out to the public in many different ways and I don't want to say we agree 100% but I see I think that we agree that something is going to happen however I don't know if we know it's going to be for the better or for the worse
1: um you know it's interesting that you say that because I I'm unwilling. I'm, <laughs> I'm a coward. I, I'm unwilling <laughs> to make any type of bold predictions. But uh, I've, you know, this since, since November 2016, I've been reading some Hunter Thompson, and you know, I look at that 1972 uh, electoral map when I think only Rhode Island and Massachusetts went for McGovern. That's a red electoral vote map. And, of course, you look at the Shakespeare, you Kennedy and a two Kennedys and and Martin Luther King Jr. assassinated Back to back to back, you had the riots. And uh, the 100 S. Thompson kind of is the wake-up call that I needed when I think that things can't get worse. I don't know if things were worse. I wasn't there. I, I only know what I read. And I hope that there is a uh, a thread of optimism through the people that are on the streets in Pittsburgh tonight. You know, the people that were on the streets when Antoine Im- 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 Rose got shot back in June, or the people that were in Ferguson. I know that, you know, when Bush to the corner, it- it's easy to resort to violence, but uh, I-, I hope that we as adults, there's that word again, can remember that um, you know, hate speech only begets violence. And, and, and of course, violence is not a response to violence. Um, you know, as student history, I guess I look at Gandhi and, and think about what he did with his civil disobedience. On the other hand, you know you look at somebody like Hitler, and, and I know that it, everybody's cooked to milk you know Hitler, but uh, yeah, Hitler he wasn't doing that quietly. So I hope that you know with, with the more towards the grindy side of things, and you know,
0: we'll take it to the center type of thing. Right. So, what do you have on your writing horizons next, or are you still mulling around ideas? I'm still mulling. I. uh um, my, my brain is,
1: uh, I'm doing a lot of reading, you know, a lot of philosophy, um, you know, trying to get through a lot of different books that I haven't time to really get through. And uh, it, it's kind of important to me. This is something that... Probably because of the climate, probably because of the way things are. Um, You know, I feel like I need to fill the tanks. I've seen somebody, you know, talk about that. Uh, Joss Whedon, actually the creator of uh, the Empire Slayer, talked about the importance of filling the tanks. And I think I'm filling the tanks. I want to try to do something different. Maybe I do want to let some of what's happening flow through me and um, maybe just start digesting it. This is me territory for me, as it is for a lot of people.
0: And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Before I let you go, is your wife working on anything right now?
1: She is. She is uh, always working on something. She probably has two or three things going on right now. But uh, she had a nephew born in August. So she got an idea for a series of young adult novels. okay. Kind of like a Harry Potter. Yeah, a little bit like Harry Potter. I don't want say too much. Okay. In Pittsburgh with, you know, instead of Dumbledore, you got a Westinghouse. Oh, okay. Um, the, Interesting. Uh, yeah. So, this is a lot of fun. She's having fun with it.
0: So once uh, she, she gets that hashed out or get the first one or two written, I need to have her back so I can talk to her.
1: I think she would love that. I, and, uh, that'd uh, that'd be a
0: blast to do.
1: Yeah, it'd be awesome. <laughs> I had a lot of fun.
0: And, and I, I really am grateful that you took time out of your your, uh, your evening. I know, as you told me, you turn in early during the week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you for popping around about 9.30. Show. Uh, it was a pleasure. I really, really enjoyed this. I, I thought it was a great conversation and uh, really a lot fun. I'm really happy that you asked me. I would like, um, and,
0: and, and, and again, I, in the future, I'd like to do it again because with the things, the way things are changing and the, and the way we're all changing, it'd be interesting to revisit this conversation in a few months. It sure would, you
1: know, it sure would,
0: and I would love to come back and do it all over again. Uh, Jason, I really appreciate it, and uh, thank you very much for joining me. And uh, we'll talk, to, we'll talk again you. real soon soon. Sounds good. You have a good night. Thank you. You too. That was uh, Jason Jack Miller, author of All Saints. Um, He is uh, in the Uniontown area. What a pleasure to do it, to to talk with him. Him and I have uh, crossed paths multiple times and uh, finally actually had a First time I've actually had a real conversation with him, which was really nice. But anyhow, yours truly, Bill Alexander, here on FAYA TV Channel 77, and also on YouTube and on online with So uh, hopefully everything. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed that, and uh, we'll be doing more interviews like this in the near future. And again, my uh, sympathy and condolences goes out to the uh, Tree of Life uh, Synagogue for the situation that happened over the weekend. Again, just 11 people people senselessly killed which is just just uncalled for in this day and age and again uh, my condolences goes out to the family and the friends of the people that were involved in this situation and again I, I am uh, <laughs> just taken back by the whole thing and cannot believe that it happened in, in the city of Pittsburgh in western Pennsylvania but anyhow hopefully you guys enjoyed tonight's program and we will uh, Talk, talk again here real soon and we'll be back next time here online with yours truly. Bill Alexander. Well I'm tired and I gotta go home. I'm tired and I gotta go home. Ready to launch a new career or not sure what to do after graduation? Rumpke is hiring for CDL driving trainees. We pay you to get your CDL license while working for us. Driver trainees receive $18 an hour, great benefits, and Rumpke will pay your CDL costs. Once you're a CDL driver, you can earn $1,000 to $1,300 a week and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in your first year. Apply today and launch a lucrative career at Rumpke. Apply now at rumpkecareers.com. Equal opportunity employer. Restrictions apply. How about we heat things up tonight? Mm, How so? Get a little fresh, add some steam, sizzle and spice.
1: (laughs) Wait, you're talking about going to Outback again, aren't you? Fire things up at Outback Steakhouse. For a limited time, try our Bloomin' Fried Shrimp. Or get fresh with our new strawberry salad. Go big with our bone-in ribeye. Or the filet and grilled shrimp on the barbie. Then cool off with a cucumber crush or peanut koala. Try them all before they're gone. Let's Outback.